0: And that'll happen as soon as we're done with service. And we'll run on up to the Amadeo's house. If you don't know where that is, somebody in the clothes will give you the address so that you can uh, find your way up there. But it's basically take a right on Oyster Point and just keep on going and left on Bethel and head into Taylor Farms. Uh, And you'll see a bunch of cars that don't look like they belong there. Um, All all in that (laughs) I'll <laughs> be, be the easiest way to find out. Hmm. That must be the house. <laughs> All right. Luke chapter 7. We're finally there. We're, we're doing I mean it. I'm there now. Oh, one more thing. <laughs> we have our our transition of our newest teens in service with us today. So... They're here with their guardian slash parental units. And so, you know, you've got Paula in the back over there. You've got a couple girls up this way. Savannah. And uh, anyway, they're, they're here to, to start really being part of the service with their parents as they, you know, kind of get in the groove of, of, you know, worshiping God and, you know, singing, praying to him, taking notes, being engaged in the scriptures, not just being passive, unfolding their arms, getting involved with all of that. So those of you who have your arms folded and thinking about all that. <laughs> Do that Do that now, yeah. Uh, get your notebooks out, I guess, too, you know, now we've mentioned that. Um, but by the way, I, I, about a month or two ago, I, I had mentioned how when, when people come in and they see our teens taking notes, that it, it really is quite convicting to them, They're like, wow, you have young people that are involved. And, and I remember saying hey, at the Easter service, make sure that we do that. I felt like I, and I, I remember I was reminded of this by a brother, that I, I didn't, hopefully we, we don't do those sorts of things just to impress people but that we do it because we are to be engaged otherwise then I'm just promoting you all to be Pharisees it's not what I want, trust me it's not what I want uh, but, but that we really do do these things because we want to be as engaged thoroughly in the scriptures and, and really uh, come to see Jesus be like Bereans who go back and study the word and, and make sure that we are gaining from this alright, a lot of prelude I mean it now oh, yes, no, yes, I mean it Luke 7 Verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this, what was all this? The Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plateau, as it's uh, recorded here in Luke. I mean, big-time stuff. Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep. Woe to you who are rich, well-fed. You laugh now. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Love your enemies. Major stuff. Uh, don't judge others. Who is the wise builder, the person who hears the Word of God and does it, not just the person that is all about the Word of God and is not putting it into practice. Having finished that sermon, he now then transitions into a beautiful story of faith, the kind of faith that he was talking about when he was talking about who is it that really is making Jesus Lord? Who is it that says, Lord, Lord, with sincerity It's only he not who hears the word, not the person who studies the Bible, not the person who goes to church, but the person who really puts some meat on the bones, who, who puts it into practice. And so when he had finished saying all this, what I just mentioned, to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, Capernaum being his new adopted hometown, Capernaum where just a couple chapters earlier, the paralytic was lowered through the roof before Jesus. Capernaum, where he healed the entire town, where Jesus' mother-in-law was was healed of the fever. Capernaum, where Matthew was the tax collector, and he was called and he began to follow Jesus. Capernaum, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, where they were fishermen and they began to follow Jesus. This same Capernaum. And there, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. How sick? Matthew 8 has a parallel account of this. And when Matthew describes the sickness, he says that he was paralyzed and suffering terribly. And Luke adds the, the, the additional fact that he was about to die. By the way, this picture is a, is a kind of bit of an aerial view of Capernaum. We were there uh, just a little while ago. Uh, and while we were there, this is the synagogue. It's the very foundation of the synagogue that this centurion built, by the way. Uh, and, and it's on, in, in the same synagogue where Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand. It's in a house right next to that synagogue where the man is lowered through the roof. It's right there. If you can go in November of 2015 on this trip to Israel, things come alive in ways that you would not expect. If it can work, boy oh boy, see if you can make that work. It's linked right off of the front page of our our hamptonroadschurch.org website. Uh, but, But here in Capernaum, the centurion heard of Jesus, and he sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. This is all kind of like thermonuclear blasts to the Jews to hear this in a sermon, but, but also to hear this gospel spread amongst Jewish Christians, to hear about a Gentile who's having this kind of close relationships with the Jews. And a Gentile who loves this nation, a Gentile who's built their synagogue. Remember who, who would be reading Luke's gospel? The early church trying to wrestle through With the black-white, well, not black-white, but the Jew-Gentile relationships that are going on. And yet the early church, despite these huge gaps, cultural, socioeconomic gaps, and ethnic gaps that existed, the early church refused to ever become segregated. Praise God. And as you look across this crowd right here, praise God that we're in alignment with that very same spirit. How easy it would be to kind of go look around where you can go to the black service, the Korean service, the white service, that anyone that you want to find, you can find your own flavor, literally your own flavor, that looks like you, acts like you, grew up like you, and it is segregated to such a degree that it's weirdly frightening because it all runs completely counter- to the huge, huge fight of the New Testament to never allow that kind of segregation to occur among God's people. And, I've shared this before, if you're here visiting with us and you're coming from some sort of an all-white church or an all-black church, I'm not saying to you to walk away from that church. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying to you, run. (laughs) There's something in the foundation of that kind of segregation that runs so counter to the message of the gospel right. that it ought to give you not just pause, but but, but real fright of, of how it is that we can be comfortable, wittingly or unwittingly, with such a, a separation. So the Jews say, this man deserves... To have you do this, to, to heal his servant, because he loves our nation, built our synagogue, Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself, I'm a man under authority, soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes. That one, come, he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Thalmazo, marveled, astounded at at what he just heard. And he turned to the crowd following him, and he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel, And then, as though we actually even needed this, because we know it's coming, then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. That's right. I got two points that I want to look at today. First is a bit of an homage to the 1992 classic Wayne's World. We're not worthy. I love that scene, by the way, in the movie as... They, they come into the party there in Milwaukee, and uh, who do they encounter but none other than rock idol Alice Cooper himself. Alice Cooper's a guy, by the way. <laughs> and as they encounter none other than Alice Cooper, there they are, dumbfounded, gobsmacked, slack-jawed, only to say, Alice Cooper, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. We are scum. We're not worthy. <laughs> to be able to come in in the presence of such greatness for them. And I I appreciate this passage because I think all of us in in our own walk have had times where we've read our own press clippings a bit too much, believed our own resume a bit too much, and maybe thought a little bit too highly of our own worthiness. Or maybe we've psyched ourselves out into a, a victim mentality and a self-pity party of thinking that I'm so unworthy. Oh, no, 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 leave, leave me alone. Don't, don't bother me, Jesus. Uh, I can't imagine that. And when I, in my first year as a disciple, I um, had a crazy turn of events in my life and ended up divorced. And it was only about a year or so after that that the church where I was in Baltimore at the time came to me and asked if I would like to be an intern to train to become a minister. And I remember hearing that call and thinking, oh, how I would love to be able to do such a thing. But there I was thinking to myself, though, I, I, I don't know how I can do that. I've got a black mark on my life that is not going to be going away. I'm a divorcee, and now I'm going to be a minister of the gospel? And how's that even going to work? How about as I like reach out to people and I kind of tell them my story, and I felt like, well, I don't even have a testimony to be able to give. Where, where am I going to be able to go with any of this? And uh, you know, kind of that, that stain of my own unworthiness paralyzed me from being able to do the things that Jesus really wanted me to be able to do. And maybe you find yourself on your path, whether it's to seek Jesus right now or maybe you've been churning along in the body of Christ, but there's, there's something in your spiritual resume that you think makes you just so completely disqualified, unworthy to be able to step back up again and get in the game for Jesus Christ. Come on. Well, whatever it is, whatever you think it might be, it is of no account. And neither, by the way, is all the stuff that you think makes you worthy. And go, ahead, go ahead and you pile it all on up. And and in the end, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. How about this guy? He had a pretty good spiritual resume. I mean, he's, he's not even among the privileged Jews. And he comes to a point where he has great compassion for his slave which was unusual at that time he's very humanitarian uh, given that a, a slave was considered a piece of property for the most part he's, he's also by the way risen to the rank among the ranks of the centuri- of, of the Roman army as a centurion that's that's as high as you go among the enlisted and unless you're born into some sort of special caste he's not going to be jumping into the officer ranks in, in that day and age And the the amazing thing about the centurion, this is a a quote from the first century on what was a proper qualification for someone wanting to be a centurion. And today we would think of that as a chief or a sergeant. But here's what it would said for a, a centurion. They must not so much be seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action and reliable, they ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. And over and over again, when Luke considers centurions, he does so in the most positive light. In Luke 23, at the end of the gospel, you have the centurion making a great proclamation of, of, of uh, Jesus really being the son of God. In Acts chapter 10, you have the first baptized Gentile in Cornelius, the centurion in Caesarea. Uh, Later in Acts 22, 23, 24, 27, Paul has a lot of various interactions with centurions. And in all of those cases, they are what you would call a stand-up guy, a good, solid man that from any measure would be considered a a worthy dude, a, a good guy, and this is this centurion. He's described in these glowing terms as a solid guy who has got his head on straight, can command other men. He's not impetuous, but bold and brave when he needs to be. He has compassion for his slave. He built the synagogue. Somehow he had had you know, a little bit of money in his back pocket, and he was able to bring about the construction of a synagogue. So he has a, an altruistic patronage for these Jews, he's also open-minded that although Jews tend to hate Gentiles and Gentiles tend to hate Jews, that doesn't in sense entrench him and keep him from opening his arms and his mind wide to this Jehovah God that they're all worshiping. And when that synagogue needed to be built, he was the one to be the one to, to back that up. He also had heard about Jesus in this passage. And he's not somebody who is just dabbling in Jesus but he's ready to hear about Jesus and to put everything on the line for Jesus. And so when the Jews who are sent by him the elders of the Jews no less to go to Jesus what do they say to Jesus? They say he is and the word they use is axios or he is worthy. He is worthy. All of his press clippings says that he is worthy good man. Consider him Jesus. Built a synagogue, loves our people, rose through the ranks. Steady man, great man. And the word worthy is an interesting word. It's axios, where you get the word axis or axiom. And axios literally kind of means to think, think of a long arm or, or the axis of a plant. You know, it's like the, the, the long stem of the, of the plant. It is to to bring things into balance, almost though you you have a a lever point and they're being brought into balance, that all that you are, the weight of you as a man, your gravitas is is now kind of leveling the scales to show that you're a man that brings about equilibrium and justice, that you are steady and and a lot of greatness embodied in the honor of that word of, of being worthy here. And... The Jews, who would ordinarily be, you know, spewing bitter bile at a Gentile, are now like, oh, sure, can we do something for you? You got it. We love you. You love us. It is a beautiful thing. And and off they go. If anybody has a chance in the Gospels of looking at themselves and saying, hey, I wasn't born in the right ethnicity. I didn't grow up with the Scriptures but here I am, living it out to the best of my ability. I'm pretty worthy. It was this man who might be tempted to have that sort of a thought. But when, when Jesus actually answers the envoys, the messengers, saying, you know what? I'm coming your way. I think I took him off guard. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought, uh, I, you know, I thought these Jews would just start the dialogue with him. And we'd have some negotiation, see what begins. And because Jesus is so eager to break down boundaries, to, to break down the walls of our heart even, to get to us, sometimes it takes, takes us back. I'm like, oh, I, you know what? I, I thought I was just going to kind of have a little Bible study here with you guys. Suddenly, oh, yeah, I mean, we're talking about me giving my life to Jesus already? Yeah. I'm like, whoa, hold on. Can I, can I step back and send another messenger your way? You know, we'll exchange text messages for a while. How about if we do that? I, I feel more comfortable with that. Yeah. That's almost, I think, the way that he's taken back by that. But that's the way that Jesus comes barreling into our lives. As in, in the midst of, of us not even thinking that we deserve it, suddenly that's the greatest prequalification for Jesus to come in. The minute that we think we're all that, oh yeah, I'll study the Bible. You share a few things with me, and I'll share a few things with you. I got some insights. Check me out. I mean, there's, there's no place for that kind of pride as we try to seek Jesus. And to be excited by any sort of conviction that can come our way from anyone through the, through the Scriptures is, is so laudable and so precious in the sight of God. But let me get back to this. As, as soon as Jesus is like, I'm coming, I'm coming His way, you got it. Serve this man, watch my stuff. And now, instead of sending the Jews, oh, and, and let's face it, He built their synagogue. They're going to say good things about him. They're going to say he's worthy. Now he's going to send his buddies. And your closest buddies, they don't think you're all that all the time. Yeah, they like you, but they know your flaws for sure. So who does he send on the second trip to make sure Jesus knows that he's not worthy? Not not the Jews who kind of owe him for being their patron and building their temple, but his close friends. Now his close friends are like, Jesus, check, you know, seriously, Jesus. No, no, no. This guy is not worthy. You, you should see him on Fridays when we get done with... No, he, he is not... Trust us on this one. Not worthy. And he tries to get that message across to Jesus. And, and as the message comes across, because he's afraid that Jesus is going to come into his house. And, and we know from, from uh, Acts chapter 10, when Peter has dialogue with Cornelius... According to our law, we are not to come into your house or have fellowship with you as Gentiles. Not to mention that a Gentile would make a good Jew unclean, defiled, and not to mention that a dead body would also defile Jesus and put him in some sort of isolation according to the Jewish customs and laws as well. And so all of this is conspiring, and and this this, uh, centurion is sincerely concerned that he's about to defile Jesus because Jesus is so excited to barrel in on him. But just like the, the, the woman that is unclean and bleeding is, is afraid that she might make Jesus unclean because of the crowd, it's all the opposite. You come in contact with Jesus, we're not making Jesus unclean. Our sins are placed on Jesus on the cross. Yes, but guess what happens? The blowback of all of that is a purity and a holiness that comes like a fire hose back our way. And so likewise with this entire event, all the potential defiling uncleanness that might be contaminating Jesus is no match for the loving, selfless holiness that he wants to impart back in the other direction. And so he does here and he does for us. And so he's able to then be able to say to Jesus, you know what, Uh, I got nothing. I got nothing. I, I know they presented me as all that, but I am nothing. There's no better gift, I think, to have as you head towards the cross than to have that thought. No greater gift, even even for Barb, no greater gift for Barb today than to really have this attitude of, wow, I cannot believe that Christ is going to cause me to be born again of water and his spirit. That he took my sins in his body on the tree so that I might die to sin and live for him? I I get to be part of that? No, it's impossible, right? How how could I ever possibly warrant this in any way? And and that idea of realizing that, no, we, we do not warrant it in any way is exactly right. And this man has a conviction that transcends what everybody else is telling him. And... Interestingly, as he does, it's then when Jesus is so appreciative of him. And yes, it is true. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. But that's not the end of the story. We do come to that conclusion. But my next point is, but our faith is amazing. And once we come to this place of vulnerable dependence and our unworthiness, the only place where we can go that makes sense is to trust in something other than ourselves. Trust in something other than ourselves to balance those scales. And that's what this man does. He trusts fully Jesus at his word. He has a good advantage in his background, and that he is a centurion. He knows what it is to take orders. He's not the top of the food chain. He knows what it is to be moved around like a pawn by some officer, but he also knows what it is to move around a hundred other men like pawns in in the chain of command. And for those that operate in a very clear chain of command, I think actually that's a great advantage to faith. Because we see clearly commands of scripture. And we're not wrestling with, okay, so what's my motivation for obedience to this command right now? I mean, you have a moment like that in the Air Force, Marines, Navy, Army. You're not lasting long. But if you're just simply excited, great. Clarity of command, let's do, Coast Guard, sorry. Clarity of command, I got it, great. Let's go, let's move forward with this. Everybody appreciates that. And and, and thus it functions well. But it functions well where there's good authority. Where there's corrupt authority and you're just blindly following commands? Well, then, that's not so laudable, is it? But Jesus is not just good. He's the ultimate good authority. And this is what this man pieces together as well. Is that I take good commands and I know what it is to obey them I give good commands and I know what it is for my men to obey them. And you, Jesus, when you give a command, wow, that is going to go down. Because not only are you good, but you're also powerful beyond what I can begin to imagine. Yeah. It's that simple childlike faith of a man who has arrived in so many different aspects of his life that really thomazo and enthralls, causes Jesus to step back And marvel at what he has just seen in this Gentile uh, sergeant's faith that's right before him. And for us, here's the great challenge. Yes, come to the place where there's no self-reliance. Yes, come to the place where you despair of self-effort. Come to the place where you despair of trying to make things right in and of your own effort. But when you get there, you're not done. That then becomes the launch place where you can then direct what you've got left. And all you've got left is you've got to trust in something because it ain't you. And if it is Jesus, then everything is about to change for you. And I don't mean trust Jesus like Jesus was talking about in his sermon that just ended. Where he says, yeah, 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 people say, Lord, Lord, but they're not doing what I say. This man says to him, Lord, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. When he says Lord here, he means it. It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord, and be jive, to be a poser. Be, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Well, then, why are you shacking up with that girl? Uh, but I love Jesus. Yeah, right. If you love him, you'll obey his commands. The simplicity of a dependent faith on Christ is that it's not just a sentiment of faith, but it is a faith where we're ready to take orders. You know what, Jesus? I got nothing. Tell me what to do. Tell me, don't be yoked with unbelievers. You know what? That's going to be hard. Been flirting with this girl at work. Boy, she thinks I'm funny. I think she's great. But you know what? I'm going to take you at your command, and I'm going to trust that this thing works on out for you. What are the hard things to trust over to Jesus? You know what the hard things are? If you're a teen, where are you gonna to go to college? Are you gonna do it for Jesus or are you gonna do it for your own gains? Your career. And your career moves and your career decisions. You're gonna do it for Jesus? Or you're gonna do it for yourself. What you do with your money? That's a big one. What you do with your romantic life. What you do in your marriage. Even though your husband seems to be a bit of an ogre at the moment, you're going to still respect? You're going to still give? Even though your wife has become a bit of a nag, you're still going to love? You're still going to forgive? You're still going to have the charitable best thoughts? We've got... Lots of scriptures that give us clear direction on all of these. How about even with your kids? You're going to trust Jesus with your kids? Oh, I will. Oh, unless my little Johnny is going to be inconvenienced or have to face some sort of a, you know, challenge of some sort of uh, one or another. By the way, as a side note, the nurses at camp had their their own uh, cart, uh, golf cart, and they were supposed to use it to, you know, help kids in case they had to come to the infirmary. But they kept using it to go visit their kids in their cabins and just you know give the counselors you know, maybe a little advice on how they can best counsel their kids along the way. So on a raid on the last night, we took the, the nurse's golf cart and we took a fan and repurposed it and took off the blades and put big, huge um, uh, helicopter propellers on top of it. And then we took a fan and made it as a tail stabilizer and, and then put a big sign, Helicopter Tours for Parents cost. Just give us your two cents. And, and, and then and then on the front, you know, they had a big scripture and it, and it said in Ephesians 6, 4, do not exasperate your children. And then below that, and then below that it said, the last chopper out of out of Vietnam. So, so sure. Sure, we say we'll trust our kids over, really, to, to, to Jesus. But do, do we really, when the chips are down in some of these cases? I'll, I'll show you pictures of that sometime soon. But. <laughs> but these are the tough areas. Your kids, your marriage, your dating life, your money, your career, where you're going to go to university. All of these, is, that's where rubber begins to meet the road. That's where you go from saying, Lord, Lord, to really... That's where you go from saying, you know what? I got nothing, so you know what? I'm going to go with this Jesus thing. Because that's all I got. Versus, Jesus, yeah, but you know, I think I'm going to do a little bit better if I do it my way here. With my money. With my university choice. With my kids. With my marriage. With my career. You know what amazes Jesus? Those that can give it to him at his word to be able to give it to Him to that degree. You want to amaze Jesus? Well, sure. The easy part is to realize you're not worthy. But if you really want to amaze Jesus, come to that conclusion that you're not worthy. And then in the midst of that, don't wallow in a stinking pity party, but rise on up and realize, I got nothing but I got Jesus. Let's see what that does. And then don't just give Him lip service. Don't just say, Lord, Lord, not do what He says. But to really mean this Lord, hear what he says and actually put it into practice. In the end, miracles occur. But how about beyond all of that, you get to delight Jesus Christ himself. He gets to, who who knew that we could actually have this great effect on Jesus? He will marvel. He'll be astounded. He'll be enthralled by your simple, basic, straightforward faith. Let's make a hard decision of faith this week. Let's give Jesus a reason to marvel. Amen. Amen.